Grab your popcorn and silence those cell phones because the show is about to start. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. Rick Blaine is an award-winning film critic featured on thebigscreen.net.org and has been highlighted on over 75 unreleased independent film posters in less than 12 different countries. Nick Brown. He's been the high school projectionist for the AV Club for over nine semesters and can be heard nightly at the theater talking loudly in the row behind you about the film being screened. And now, they're joining forces. Ladies and gentlemen, Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. We're back again. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks is up and running, sponsored by the Bemidji Theater. Back once again for the next 60 episodes of the show after we cross that 60 episode mark on our last one. Mileage. It's pretty good, yeah. isn't it? That is some decent mileage for this podcast, even we, even though we've had some stops and starts for reasons sometimes beyond our control, Dave. Shout-outs to our listeners, though. They're, uh, and now we can tell where you're all from. we got listeners in Vietnam and Portugal. and uh, Funny enough, your family in Pennsylvania, my brother in Rhode Island, those numbers have spiked, too. So, hey, yes. thanks, everybody. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks, back once again, hosted by myself, Joel Hoover, and by Dave Brooks. And we are sponsored by the Bemidji Theater. And we wanted to tell you about the Bemidji Theater. They have been doing something that a lot of of different theaters have been doing. They have been uh, providing opportunities for you to pick up some of their fresh popcorn. Can't beat movie theater popcorn. That's right. And that's something that a lot of theaters have been doing to provide something during this time for people to do a little bit of business. Um, They've been, in the case of the Bemidji Theater, they've been zipping it up, and uh, they've been doing ordering online to go, and then uh, they had curbside pickup on Saturday for it. So keep an eye on their Facebook page, um, CEC Theaters, Bemidji MN on Facebook. Um, If you you like them on there, they'll provide the information on, on when there are opportunities to pick up some popcorn and what days they might be doing that. They just did that on Saturday. Keep an eye out on if they might be doing that again in the future. I got a, if we were around this weekend, we would have done it. But uh, you know, keep in mind just the economics. When you sit, when you buy a ticket to the movie theater, I, I don't know what the exact percentage is, but you buy, a, say, a $7 ticket, maybe a dollar or two goes to the theater. The rest goes back to Hollywood. Yeah. So they make their money off the snack bar. That's one of the reasons why. Well, how much for a popcorn? What? Because that's how the theater funds itself. But when you go and buy right now this whole take home your popcorn, you're not buying a large popcorn. You are buying a large popcorn, a big bag, which would be like five large popcorns worth. It's a Ziploc bag. Oh, it's big. If you're, you know, you'll have enough for about five movie nights. Now, everyone having a big one big movie night. They weren't doing butter because I I think. they they were trying to limit it in terms of you know people's preference and so you would have to apply the butter yourself and maybe take care of the salt and everything First too. First world problems. Well, there's no butter yeah. on my popcorn. Exactly, you could take care of that at home. You could take it on back. So again, keep an eye on that on Facebook if they'll be doing that again in the future. But uh, it's it's pretty cool that they. I know other theaters have been doing that too, but they they got in on doing that as well here this past weekend. So the Bemidji Theater, glad to have them as a sponsor for uh, Rick and Nick Talk Flicks, and they're on Highway 2 just down from the airport. When it's Wh- safe to see movies again, I will be there front and center with a vaccine pulsing through my bod, uh, ready to watch another big screen adventure. There's so many movies that we're supposed to be coming out about now. Like James Bond was supposed to be out by now. Uh, everything's just getting pushed back, and it just 
Just give me the heebie-jeebies. I want to see them. I know. You and I would have been to see No Time to Die by yeah. this point. We There's no question. Um, I'm I'm waiting to see what's going to happen with Tenet. I know we've, we've oh, yeah. talked about that before. And it's, Greyhound, the Tom Hanks World War II yes. ship, you know, submarine movie. Have they oh, moved it? The, I, yeah, everything's got moved. I, I don't know if it's official or not, but it doesn't okay. matter. Nothing's open. So whether they have announced it or not, I think it's just a formality at this point. Uh, I think everything this side of July has been moved or will be if it hasn't been officially. So, yeah, it looks like they, they're not moving the the release date on Tenet as of yet. It's still set for July seventeenth. But if they do, um, I believe there was another Warner Brothers movie that had gotten moved out of um, October. So there would be a slot for it to possibly move back to in case it would. It would need to at that point. At I guess we're going to have to wait and see. Why have an announce a re-release date or a, right. a makeup release date? Just hold on to it, and when it's safe, okay. Well, now things are going. We got vaccines. Theaters are open. Okay, let's reschedule it, and then it'll get figured out. But when it does, there's going to be a glut of movies coming out. Yes. Of course, they might hold them out a little longer because they're not filming anything right now. So you don't want to have go from fa- go from feast to famine where now there's nothing coming out well all these movies that got pushed we all released them in a big chunk and now the cabinets are bare so who knows they're not all going to go to VOD so it'll be interesting yeah and for good reason they they shouldn't all have to go to VOD let's have that on-screen experience in the theater a little bit with some of these these movies that cinematic experience which brings us fittingly to today's topic and to today's director because we today are going with a very director-specific movie. Um, this person has a project that is in the works, which we will tell you about a little bit later on here during during the pod. But this guy is one of those directors who many consider to be one of the forefront directors of new Hollywood um, yeah. from the 70s onward. And when you think of this person, it is easy to think of big cinematic stories. And, and somebody who just has a way of gravitating you to the movie theater, especially with some of his most well-known classics. And we are talking about Steven Spielberg. And he is the, one of the all-time greats, no debate. Yes. Down. The filmography is remarkable when, when you take a look at it and go through all of it. But like you said, Dave, he is one of the greats, not just a modern great director-wise, but historically a great as well, because not only has his work been greatly appreciated by audiences, by peers, he is lauded as well, and people love working with him and love having him on board to work with them. I think financially, just the returns, he is the most successful director ever, I believe. I'm pretty much just pulling that out of the air, but I think I read that somewhere. Um, so between Indiana Jones and everything else, E.T., and, and not just what he's directed, but you know he's also a well-known executive producer. So he was involved in The Goonies and Back to the Future and, uh, every, and TV, too. He's been everywhere. And he, they're not all huge, giant, wow, that movie was absolutely stunning, but they're always entertaining. I can't think of one Spielberg movie that's like, I don't care if I never watch that movie again, ever. This man has got skills. What do you appreciate most about the movies he does and the way that he does those movies? Particularly, you know, you can kind of break his career down into the two halves. There was the more current stuff that he does, which tends to be more serious. You know, I think Pulse Chandler's yeah. list, there's a lot of serious movies. That's where you go with the Saving Private Ryan and Lincoln and 
But then there's an occasional surprise. But you go prior to that. Jurassic Park was the last movie of his, call it the fun years. And that they weren't all fun. I mean, he did do things like Empire of the Sun, Duel, but they all had something about imagination to them. And they really captured your imagination almost from the perspective of a kid. And even now, I can watch movies from that time and I'm a kid. Maybe it's because I was a kid at the time. But then you watch something like Ready Player One, and it kind of turns you into a kid again in a weird way. It's the cinematic experience. Spielberg's movies, especially his movies in the 80s and early 90s, had a way of being able to capture the imagination that comes with going to see a movie and coming up with these concepts that fed on that. He's gotten, like you said, into a more serious direction now with with some of the movies he does, but the tone of those movies was one of wonder. You you would step into the theater and there is a wonderment about whatever the story was that you were getting told. Let me give you an analogy. Have you ever walked outside of your house or outside of any building and it's warm, kind of muggy, not oppressively so, but it's just kind of thick, heavy, exciting air, the air kind of perfumey with something, maybe it's rain, maybe it's you know flowers, whatever it is, and you can just sense this excitement, this electricity that's out in the air. You can't grab it or harness it you're just swimming through it like a fish in the sea it's all around you it's like the force you can feel it you can detect it you can smell it you can physically feel it but you can't define it that is a spielberg movie you walk into it and it's there's just something about the air that comes from the theater when it's a spielberg movie that just it's it's that x factor you can't define it but it's just a perfect summer night he exploded onto the scene, though, Dave, at the beginning, because I, I was I was reading into it a little bit. He had um, one small movie credit for this amateur film called Firelight in 1964. Yeah. Then he goes and he does. Well, he had done a few short films, most notably Capped by Amblin in 1968, which is where his production company's name comes from. And then he does Sugarland Express in 1974. And then one year later, in 1975, Jaws hits theaters, and everything changed. He well, just almost, exploded oh, on yeah. the scene. I think you almost have to back up from that. You know, when he got started, obviously not just backyard 8mm movies with the kids in the neighborhood, but he went to USC, and he was not alone there. There was a lot of guys that were coming up that were going to, either they went through the program together or they all kind of met up as New Hollywood was starting to rise. And, of course, most notably George Lucas, who was going to go on to do big things. Uh, but you had Brian De Palma. You had Francis Ford Coppola. Yeah. You had, you had uh, other guys that are at their moment that are escaping me. Uh, that I know really, the gist, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. They all came up and they staked their claim and almost immediately in a wave. You had the arrival of New Hollywood. You had, like you said, 1975, Jaws came out. And it just... And this came out right on the heels of the book. And Jaws has been credited as probably the first summer blockbuster. It invented the concept. We talked about this, and we have previously, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it changed everything in a lot of ways. And then shortly after that, his buddy George Lucas changed it all again with Star Wars. But an interesting thing that doesn't get the credit that it deserves, Spielberg does have a little bit of a fingerprint on Star Wars. He didn't officially have anything to do with it. But his good buddy, George Lucas, called him and his other director buddies over to the house for a rough screening of Star Wars. And it's been kind of underground that Star Wars was saved in the edit. The original cut was horrible. 
and it was not good at all, and people couldn't understand it. And he had all of his buddies watching it, including Spielberg. And after the movie, what'd you guys think? Oh, George. You know, so all these guys, John Milius is credited with really kind of writing the opening crawl and coming up with it and coming up with ideas and how to kind of edit it together. And clearly it worked because Star Wars really did change movies for all time. But Spielberg was a part of that. And he never really wanted to get too involved. It was George's thing. But if Hoove calls me up before a date and says, how's my hair? I'm going to tell you what I think. Oh, try this. You look good. Try this. You know, good luck, buddy. You know, it's your date, but, you know, I want to set you out the best way possible. I think that's what Spielberg and a lot of those guys did for George Lucas. Believe it or not, Spielberg does have a little bit of influence, a little bit on what helped make Star Wars successful. And clearly he had just scored big with Jaws. He did. And Jaws set the precedent for many things that we would see become common piece with with many of Spielberg's early decade films that he, that he had the first couple of decades of of his career. Number 1, the music. Working with John Williams. Very very common collaboration that they that they had. They seem to anytime that they work together there's there seems to be this great understanding between the two of them of this is exactly the kind of music that that I need. If Spielberg is coming to Williams and saying this is this is the kind of music that I need, Williams always churns it back out and it fits the movie perfectly. Funny enough, with Jaws, you know, Spielberg comes over to John Williams's house or lab or wherever he's working, the sound room, and he plays the theme for Jaws on the piano. Da-da-da. Spielberg thought he was joking. Ah, that's funny. What? No, really, this is it. What? He didn't think. He famously said, "I don't think that's going to work." And then he heard it coming together with a full orchestra. He saw it with, the, and the, of course, and it's you one put of it, more, of course, to the images. Well, yeah, it's absolutely iconic. They screened Jaws in a test screening before it was done because this movie clearly had problems. The mechanical shark not working was one of them, but that actually gave it much more abilities than it ever did. You had to you had to hint that the shark was there because you couldn't see the shark because the shark didn't work. So they would do POV shots uh, from the shark's perspective where you had the camera right on the water line and a little above and a little below. You had the barrels signifying the shark and then you had John Williams' score. They screened it with no music. And it's kind of like how Star Wars went. And then they got the music done. Yeah. And they put it in and everything changed. And this guy... Finds ways. Um, I can't use the, the the true expression. You got to make chicken salad out of chicken something else. And the whole Jaws movie, he was ready to be fired on any given day of this movie because it was going long because nothing was working and they're trying to shoot scenes with the actors and trying to fix the shark and then you run out of scenes with the actors. Now it has to be the shark. How do you make this work? And they salvaged that movie from a sinking ship, literally, and really made it something. They will never, if you ever try to remake that movie, it'll fall on its face. None of the sequels have ever lived up to it. No shark movie, Jaws or otherwise, has ever lived up to that movie. That is the be-all, end-all, will never be rivaled on any level, shark movie, ever. The other great, the the second thing uh, that Spielberg seems to have that, that works really well is he has a way of being able to 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 get you invested in whatever the world is that you are becoming a part of within the story um with with jaws you really get a sense of the town in a good way the people involved with the town what their what their particular allegiances are what matters to them in the town 
you get a pretty clear sense in his movies of who the characters are, what they're about, and the way in which the story impacts them. And then because of that, the story impacts you, too. And he just, he has a way of being able to draw you into that to set up, this is where I'm going to go with it. In the case of Jaws, it was setting up for the big final conclusion, which was the guys heading out onto the boat and going to try to go after this this shark. And he brings these these stories together to that point, to that end of of that particular journey that takes place. It kind of it, it sets a precedent for things to come, whether it was with Raiders of the Lost Ark or with Jurassic Park, where you get a very clear sense of the people, their connection to this story. And then even though it may seem to be a larger-than-life kind of story, you still feel pretty invested in it. And it because it's larger-than-life, it makes for a great canvas on the movie screen. You know, depending on what filmmaker you're talking about, some are well-known as tyrants, almost. Stanley Kubrick demanding 60, 80 yeah. takes of one, over 100, in some cases, of one scene to get it just right. Spielberg is very much the driving force behind any movie he is involved in. But he also is very much a collaborator. And whether that's, you know, John Williams really trying to give a voice in a way that the film itself wouldn't. But a lot of, you know, Jaws is a perfect example. Obviously, a lot of people know the movie was based off of the book by Peter Benchley. And the, the book is very different from the movie. If you read the book and you see the movie, it's not the same thing. It's very different. Yes, a shark is menacing the town and there's similar themes, but there's major departures. And one of the reasons was that even the ending of the book, for example, is a very uneventful, non-climactic ending. In the book, they've harpooned the shark, they've harpooned the shark, and the shark is coming for the chief, and he's, the chief knows he's about to die, and then the shark just straight up dies in mid-charge, just kind of goes to the bottom. Quint gets wrapped up in his leg for the, with a rope and gets pulled down, kind of like Captain Ahab, which is there's a lot of parallels between yes. Moby Dick and Jaws. It wasn't theatrical enough, and there was a lot of plot points that didn't work so you've got these great actors that a lot of them had stage backgrounds, Richard Dreyfuss and Roy Scheider and Richard Sh- and uh, uh, Shaw. Uh, they sat down and came up with a lot of the dialogue themselves. They had other writers come in. The, the famous USS Indianapolis scene was written by probably a combination of what was wound up on screen, no less than three people, including Robert Shaw himself, who kind of gave a final polish to this, the, the dialogue for that. So you don't have Spielberg saying, look, this is how it's going to be. You, I, I, how can we make this better and draw the powers out of the people you've surrounded yourself with? And Spielberg has been so known for that with producers that have been working with him. Uh, Kathleen Kennedy, who's now upsetting uh, Lucasfilm right now with Disney and working over there and doing Star Wars things. But she and her husband, Frank Marshall, have been with him forever. John Williams and a lot of the same editors and costume designers. John Williams, of course, probably the most well-known. He's assembled a hell of, hell of a team. And to be really successful, a lot of advice you get from a lot of successful people, surround yourself with the best. Spielberg clearly is the principal of that school, but has got an amazing crew around him and always has. And every once in a while, you'll get a a variance of some sort. But for the most part, they're all the same names that pop up on the credits for all those movies. It's proof that a great director has a great team in many cases. Um, Like you said, there, there may be those are tours who who really show the way and they've got a vision and Spielberg has 
a lot of that. But if you have a great team working around you as well, it's it's amazing the things that it produces. And we've seen that with the people he has collaborated with. And even even in projects that he has been a part of where maybe he's only been a, a part of it as a producer or, or an executive producer in some way, or maybe he's done a little bit of writing for it, the collaboration element when you get those kinds of minds in the room goes a very long way. And he clearly saw that in many cases with some of the movies he did. And speaking of collaboration, one of the things I really love about him, you don't hear this about a lot of people, but those that are truly great down the road, you know, when they're finally retiring or whatever, and all these well-known people stand up and they always say the same story. This guy helped me with did it, did it. Spielberg was one of those guys, as busy as he was, as in demand as he was, he always had time for the next group coming up. You got to the top floor, he was always the guy that would send the elevator back down for the next guy. And so a couple movies in the late 70s and early 80s, he teamed up with some people that were on the way up. Uh, The Joe Dantes, The Next Generation, Robert Zemeckis. Yes. This is a guy he teamed up with on a couple of movies, Used Cars and I Want to Hold Your Hand, he executive produced, but they were all Zemeckis movies. And then later, really helped Zemeckis break out big time with Back to the Future, one of my all-time favorite movies. He executive produced that, but it was Zemeckis' movie. And to the point where, well-known from Back to the Future, Eric Stoltz was the original Marty McFly. And as good an actor as Eric Stoltz is, it just wasn't working. He was playing it straight and not that much humor. And they needed humor, and they were almost halfway through filming. Almost an incredulous humor, like yeah. the one that Michael J. Fox brought. So yeah. Zemeckis and Spielberg are sitting down, and Zemeckis and writer Bob Gale, they know the movie just isn't firing like it needs to because of this. And Spielberg gave him the leash and said, look, I will go to bat for you. This is your movie. You do what you want to do, and if you decide you want to recast it, i back you up. And that's exactly what happened. And so Stoltz was let go, and they worked to get Michael J. Fox in, and the rest is history. But how many big names, no, we got to do this, we got to make this happen by this. It's got, no, he's just, you made your choice, you got to sleep with it. Spielberg is, you got, this is your movie. Make it happen. Do what you need to do, and I will go to bat for you. Who does that? That's pretty special, isn't it? Especially you know, for an up and comer. In this day and age, it's all about me. I'm looking out yeah. for me. Spielberg is, you know, and along with that, not that I want to jump too far down the line, he co-founds DreamWorks, which was ideally going to be, this is where the artists come to work. We're going to support the artists. We're going to be kind of a hands-off studio. That was the original idea. And for the most part, it, it was, but it kind of have morphed since then. So between uh, music and movies and TV, that's what the SKG is at the bottom of DreamWorks, Spielberg, Katzenberg, and Geffen, if you didn't know. I did not know that. That's interesting. Yeah. So this is a guy that's all about bringing things up and bringing people forward. And look what people like Robert Zemeckis has done. Brought mm-hmm. forth Back to the Future and brought forth Forrest Gump. And uh, he's really got into a lot of CGI stuff. He has. That would yeah. be extremely interesting. That maybe wouldn't have happened if there wasn't a Spielberg saying, hey, let me help you out. Spielberg's filmography from Jaws through around 1982 is just Classic. a whole series of he don't miss. Like, literally, it is the he don't miss meme right there. 1977, he dabbles into sci-fi for the first time with Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Major, major success, especially at a time where sci-fi movies were were really taking off because, of course, Star Wars came out the same year. Close Encounters was right up there as well among the best movies of the year. Great year. 
for sci-fi movies, great time for sci-fi movies. Then he goes and he goes a comedic route then with 1941, and then comes Raiders of the Lost Ark in 1981. What a, just those three right there, what a range. And 1941, Massive range. not successful. But you had an all-star comedy cast. You go from sci-fi and a little touch of horror. Um, you go to comedy, almost a musical in its own right. It wasn't really musical, but it had, call it highly choreographed numbers. He was just showing his range. Oh, yeah. yeah. And then you go to Raiders of the Lost Ark teaming up with his buddy George Lucas to do you know, what was going to start as a James Bond movie. He wanted to do a Bond movie. And George Lucas, they went on vacation together to Hawaii. And he said, ah, hold yep. off on Bond. I got a better idea. And they came up with basically doing a combination of those pulp shows from the back of the day, the Maltese Falcon, and get these ingredients mixed up and you come up with Indiana Smith. Now let's change the name. Indiana Jones sounds better. And that's what they did. It's in, I mean, Indiana Jones is its own thing. What an amazing movie. It took the best of those elements and just, wow. I mean, what can you say about it? Wow. Because it, it took those elements and put it into an adventure scape. It's, it, it was like it took the James Bond concept and put it into, A, a different time frame, and B, put it into a different kind of element with that explorer, adventurer kind of element. Like you said, Going back to uh, some of those movies of the 40s and 50s, take a, you know, take a Treasure of the Sierra Madre kind of kind of movie and put this this Indiana Jones character into this discovery kind of movie, this um, explorer adventurer kind of movie, and let's let's run with it. Yeah, I can I can see how the Maltese Falcon played a role in that a little bit as well. Um, let, let's see. May- Oh, the treasure of the um, Sierra Madre. Um, you, basically, a lot of those adventure Humphrey Bogart kind of characters, yeah. those Saturday morning serials where you get the 15 minutes of the show and you know at the end of the show, the guy's going over the cliff in the truck and will he get out? And the next week, you've got to come back. It was taking TV all, and movies combined. Oh, together. yeah. It was yeah. taking all of those ingredients, take, you know, cherry picking some of the best ideas from all of these mixing them up into a whole new thing to the point where you get this almost legendary character even before the first credits had rolled. You know, there's such a gravata with this guy. You're, you're seeing Indian shadow. You don't see his face, but you know he's got this, you know, and you don't even know who it is. And he's fighting off these guys that are his own team. And then you see him kind of emerge from the shadows from the Amazonian rainforest. It's just... The, the opening sequence of Raiders of the Lost Ark is its own Saturday morning serial. It is. If they'd stop right as the boulder comes at him, will Indiana Jones escape the boulder? It's just, it, it, what an amazing movie. That's the hook. Yep, that oh, was the absolutely. hook there. You're in. It doesn't matter what happens after that. Ark schmark, let's, let's, let's see this, tre- this treasure thing. It's amazing then that one year later in 1982... His most profitable movie from the '80s comes out, and one of one of the great movies ever, E.T. The Extraterrestrial. Is he went the next step with the sci-fi movies of, well, what if a family would adopt an alien, essentially, and and having to deal with the government infringement? There's that that imagination piece again that comes out very clearly in E.T. Is this this whole idea and this whole idea of using a childlike wonder and of a childlike encounter with with an alien up against well this is this is how the government this is how the powers that be would see this and and treat this and you get that 
that juxtaposition coming in. Taking the sci-fi element that he had explored previously and going a completely different route then with it, which which is so cool. Very interesting kind of behind-the-scenes story about E.T. E.T. originally started out as two different stories that were essentially a sequel to Close Encounters of the Third Kind. What really? if the aliens come back? What if there's a what if there's a alien that gets left behind? What if there's a darkness? And eventually, these stories that were coming together, and it was, one of the working titles was Watch the Skies, and it was a dark horror movie. But eventually, these different elements kind of split apart. One part became E.T., and the other part, which was filmed simultaneously, became Poltergeist, the dark, evil spirits. And Spielberg produced that. Same there's, year. The same year. In fact, just down the street, Spielberg would go from the set of E.T. to the set of Poltergeist back and forth, enough to the point where there's been, even to this day, rumor that you know Toby Hooper, who had best known for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, directed Poltergeist with Spielberg executive producing it. There's a lot of talk that Spielberg may have actually directed Poltergeist, and Toby was just kind of there as a figurehead because there was a restriction that you could only do the one movie. So he directed E.T. and set up Toby Hooper to do Poltergeist, but was very hands-on. And I'm sure he was hands-on. Well, he wrote it. He co-wrote oh, it. Oh, yeah. That movie. He, he was it was very a three-person group there. There's, there's people that have agreed, yeah, he probably called a couple of shots because he's an executive producer, but he did not direct Poltergeist. He just didn't. Toby was very capable in a lot of ways. Maybe special effects weren't his forte, but this was very much Spielberg's fingerprints all over it. And you could see it just in the final cut. Very much like uh, AI was a Kubrick movie that was not finished. So Spielberg stepped in and finished it. It's very Spielbergian, but you could see Kubrick's fingerprints all over it. Kind of the same thing with Poltergeist. You know, it was one was directed by Spielberg, but you could see the influence of the other. One wasn't directed by Spielberg, but it's a very Spielbergian movie. If that's a new term we're going to come up with. I wondered if the word Spielbergian was going to be used a little bit during the podcast Come on, get the Bergie going. Today. Get the Bergie going. Yeah. Yeah, It's and both of them were filmed simultaneously down the road from one another in the same neighborhood, actually. Um, so it's an interesting backstory, but the fact that both of those movies kind of came out of a potential sequel to Close Encounters, yeah. which as sci-fi as that movie is, it's got elements of horror when the aliens come to take the little kid. Yeah. Spoilers, by the way, we should mention. That's creepy. I remember seeing that as a kid and I was freaked out if I saw a car headlight go by the window, kind of looked like yep. some of those scenes kind of... <sighs> Got me freaked out. And there are scenes where when the, when, the, when the scientists dressed as astronauts are coming into the house to get E.T., you could almost intercut scenes from the aliens coming for the boy in Close Encounters and scenes from that, and you almost can't tell the difference. That's right. It's scary. It's got legitimate moments of fear to the point where I'd love to show my little kid E.T. He's almost there, but I think he needs to cook a little more before yes. he's ready. Rick and Nick TalkFlix is sponsored by the Bemidji Theater as we continue talking about Steven Spielberg for our topic today. Dave, here's a question for you uh, that was ruminating in my mind, um, and I, I'd say I have a, I'd say I have a little bit of an opinion formed about it. Do you think Spielberg is a decent director when it comes to sequels? Absolutely. You you would. I do. I think that he is. It always comes down to, well, there's always exceptions to the rule. If we're talking, let's just stick with Indiana Jones. Temple of Doom, 
he has said was a reflection of some of the stuff that was going on in his life at the time. And George Lucas, too. They were both going through their own respective divorce. And it was a dark time for both of them. And Temple of Doom is a dark Indiana Jones movie. It is. Yep. Last Crusade, that's a darn good movie. Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, not so much. But, you know, other movies that he's been involved in, it's not like the quality drops. It's not like it's even necessarily a bad story. I mean, I loved Temple of Doom when I was a kid, and in a lot of ways I still do. Um, You know, it's not like you wish they never made it. A bad sequel, to me, is defined as a movie that once it's over, you wish they didn't make it. No movie ever really lives up to the original, and that's to be expected. Rare is the sequel that is as good or surpasses the original. So you go into a sequel not expecting that. But am I going to go see Indiana Jones 2? and really wish they hadn't have made it at all because it just ruined the legacy of it. Maybe Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, and if they push ahead with the Indy 5, which Spielberg is really not, he's involved in it, but he's not going to direct it. You know, how we've talked about this before. Can Harrison Ford still go? Are we going to wish we didn't see this? I've got thoughts about that with Indy 5, but hey, there's some great sequels that he has been involved in and has done a good job. The thing about these sequels is they're still pretty entertaining, the only thing is they feel a little formulaic. Just just a little bit like like he repeats a few elements of of formula when it comes to how to do those movies, but he did find some ways to mix in some new things. For instance, having a little bit more about Indiana Jones's family history in the third one with with uh Last Crusade with bringing his father in and getting Sean Connery for it worked out really well then too to have a guy who's very well-known, very charismatic, and who could play that role in his particular manner. That added a different kind of element to it. Lost World also came to mind, too, with Jurassic Park, where maybe it got a little bit stretched in terms of what they tried to do with it with the T-Rex attack San Diego. You know, going, going a route like that, too, of trying to come up with something new and innovative within the confines of the world that you have previously created but that maybe you didn't go the route that that you needed to to come up with that. It seems like his best stuff is when he is going and he's taking maybe previously ideas that came up in another movie, for instance, like what you talked about with Close Encounters, and then going a different direction with those ideas, like with where he went with E.T., where he went with helping with Poltergeist. Rather than having to be confined to a world that has already been created and trying to innovate within that world. Like you said, it's a mixed bag in terms of in terms of success. Still pretty entertaining, but at the same time it makes you kind of going, could there have been maybe something a little bit different that could have been done within that? Overall not bad though, like you said. Yeah, you, know, you know, there's a lot of things that can sink a sequel, and one of them is we're just going to do the exact same thing and just, you know, update the characters and the setting, you know. Yeah. A Friday the 13th movie is pretty much the same movie over and over and over and over again. Okay, sometimes they bring something new to the table, and that's what you need in a sequel. And there's not any one of those sequels that Spielberg hasn't been involved with that doesn't bring in some other element. Now, the more involved he is, the better that is. Now, you get to say Jurassic Park 3, and now you're just coming up with ways to get people on the island. You know, so you're stretching the believability. A parasailing accident went wrong. We got to go get the kid. Didn't we have to do a rescue mission in the last movie? Right. You know, and this just seems kind of, eh. Then you start to reinvent it. You really reinvent it when you did Jurassic World. 
it was nostalgic. It was more of the same, but it brought a whole new element to it. And what was his did, involvement with Jurassic World? He was the executive producing it. Okay. He directed the first two. You know, the, obviously Jurassic Park is a book. That he adapted, and it's very close to the movie and the book. There's some differences, but it's yeah, very he close. was an executive. That's yeah. right. And he's always been involved in the Jurassic uh, franchise. So when Jurassic World came along, Colin Trevorrow uh, directed it, but Spielberg is very involved. But then you get to Fallen Kingdom, you start running the same route of the later Jurassic Park movies. Let's just find a way to get back on the island, and that's more of the same. You know, you bring in different things, the island blows up, and so forth, but. It's kind of the same, and they're going to, the third Jurassic World, Jurassic World Dominion, I think they're calling it, or whatever it is, um, it's coming. How, how much of a new element will it add? Is it just to get a three-picture deal out? There are moments where I think any and every director is guilty of that, and I don't think Spielberg is completely free of that, but they're entertaining if nothing else, and the biggest blunder you can have in a movie or show or TV or whatever is it entertaining? And the answer is no. Then you have failed. So even if it's not amazing, is it entertaining? Yes. Okay, success. How Now what do you get above that? That right there out of 10 stars gets you five. Is it entertaining? Yes. Okay. Now how much better than just entertaining is it? Spielberg will find ways to go well above a five. You know, sevens, eights, nines, even tens. Well, speaking of entertaining, it's it's interesting because as the 80s progressed and then went into the early 90s, he took a bit of a different direction with his directing. He went to some more drama deep cuts with the movies he did with doing The Color Purple, Empire of the Sun, and Always. And and one thing you had you had Last Crusade in there, of course, then too, along with Temple of Doom before that. But he went into those deeper drama cuts before then returning to something a little bit more akin to what he had done previously with Hook in 91. There, there was an earlier turning point with Spielberg, I think, in the early 80s that I think to some degree lent itself to that because everything up till then had been, you know, fun and wonderment, but, you know, not necessarily adult fare. He got involved in the anthology movie The Twilight Zone. He based did, a, yes. Based, of course, on the show. And this was he and four other, and four directors, he was one of them, and they all did their own segment. But something absolutely tragic happened during that movie that changed him and actually severed a relationship between another big upcoming filmmaker with John Landis, who had done The Blues Brothers and he had done uh, Animal House and also had a very good career. So during the John Landis segment, which if you've watched the movie, he directed the prologue and the first segment. Um, There was a helicopter accident where the lead actor, Vic Morrow, and two young kids that were being paid illegally under the table working way late, they got killed when a helicopter crash on them and killed them instantly, you know, to the point where decapitation came into play. It was really tragic and it shouldn't have happened. And there's a whole other discussion you can have about that. But Spielberg wasn't even there. He was executive producing the whole movie. He did not direct that portion of it. He wasn't even on the set that day, but... Because of the, some of the shady stuff that had gone on and trying to avoid, you know, the, the the responsibility of it, which ultimately they did. They got a slap on the wrist for it. But it ended the professional and personal relationship between John Landis and Steven Spielberg. It, it, it hollowed him out. And that was actually one of the first segments to be filmed. And so Spielberg had to still direct his segment while many people around him said he was hollowed out. He basically just kind of went you know, a shell of himself and just kind of got through it and moved on. And then you start to see a bit of a shift in Spielberg's work after that. I think in a way, 
I don't want to say it made him a man. I'd say Jaws made him a man. And this is a movie that threatened to eat him, that he determined to make it work. And by God, did he. But uh, I think Twilight Zone was a bit of a turning point for him as a person, which, of course, filters down into everything else. It's a, it's a long story about the Twilight Zone, but it's worth looking into. It's disturbing of yeah. what happened. Um, but it's it well, and is, he w- he was going through life changes in general too. Yeah. There during the eighties, like you had you yeah. had previously mentioned, but kind of coming through those things too, and then seeing how his his film work changed after that. It was interesting. I learned just in in researching for this that that he that as he was going through those changes, well, of course, he met Kate Capshaw then on on the set of Temple of Doom, and, and then they got married and, and have gone from there. So there were a lot of transformations that were happening for him during the 80s, and his movies kind of start to reflect that, but then then the 90s come around, and then then things start to to come back into gear again a little bit. It started with Hook, which didn't do very well critically, and I think um, Spielberg had expressed some disappointment with how that movie wrapped up and the direction he went with that. But then there's a lot of people very nostalgic for that movie. And I'm, I'm just not, it's, it's an entertaining mess of a movie. It's like 1941. It's a movie that's well worth watching. It's not a complete bomb and that there's nothing salvageable from it. 1941 is not a great movie. It's a mess. It's taking a big clump of great things and throwing it all to the wall. Some of it sticks. A lot of it doesn't. But it's not to say that it's uh, not an under the guise of comedy, though. Oh yeah, it's. I mean, it's got John Candy and John John Belushi, and it's got Dan Aykroyd. It's an all-star cast from the late seventies and early eighties, and a lot of guys from Saturday Night Live. But it just doesn't work. Hook. You've got Robin Williams at the peak of his career. You've got Dustin Hoffman, Julia Roberts, who had just done Pretty Woman, um, and a whole crew of others. Bob Hoskins. But it just, it's a mess. But then nineteen ninety three comes. And I would love to have other suggestions be put forth in terms of the greatest years for a director ever, because I'd love to see how they compare with what Spielberg did in 1993 at the same time as he is post-producing and and finishing up Jurassic Park. He goes to Poland, and over the course of, I think it was 70-plus days, they shoot and they make Schindler's List. And in the same year, those two movies, completely opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of the type of movie, the type of hit that they give to you emotionally, hit the screen, and yet for two completely different reasons, they were captivating, they were marvelous, and they remain in the pantheon of great films, not only of the nineties, but for all time as well, for completely different reasons. Jurassic Park a resounding return to Form. that that cinematic wonderment that you get with going into let's do dinosaurs and let's make CGI a, a big piece of this that's going to be a really effective piece of this and the rousing music that comes with it as well. Um, just the, the the part where where um, Hammond goes and says to all of them, "Welcome to Jurassic Park." I mean, it just hits you right on the heart in in just this wow kind of way. And then on the opposite end of the spectrum, you have Schindler's List, which just, which just hits really hard in a completely different way with the horrors of the Holocaust, the story of Oscar Schindler as well, the black and white juxtaposed by the one bit of color that comes with that movie as well. Um, 
it, it's it, it's an amazing year when you consider those two movies. That that is an unbelievable year of of work from a director to put out two movies like that. You know, a little bit of backstory. You know, he was preparing to do both of those movies, and he wanted to do Schindler's List first. And Universal, which put out both of those movies, said no. We want you to do Jurassic Park first. And so he did. That became and the summer blockbuster. That became the summer blockbuster. We want this out for the summer of 93, and then you can go make your World War II movie. And funny enough, I think both of his masterpieces, which is better than the other, is a debate. Saving Private Ryan, which came out in 99, World War II. Schindler's List, World War II. They're both his masterpiece, I think. It's funny that World yeah. War II, and then you go back to 1941, a, 19, a World War II comedy, Far on the opposite end. But the backstory, he was so, okay, I can't wait to do Schindler's List, but I got to do this one. Okay, he certainly didn't go through the motions with Jurassic Park. It's vintage, perfect Spielberg. But it also marks the end of classic wonderment Spielberg. Not that he doesn't dabble in that anymore, but not to the level that he had since Jurassic Park. You're right. But then, as soon as he's done filming it, off he goes to Poland. And in a lot of ways... He would be filming out in Poland, and then later he would do video conferencing with the post-production on Jurassic Park, which That's George right. Lucas had a huge part in. Basically, George Lucas, I'll help well, you Well, you got to trust people in a situation like that where you're working on one movie. Oh, absolutely. And, and you are in the midst of filming another one. You've got to have some people you trust in the room to put oh, that yeah. together. George Lucas, who is the founder, or one of the founders, of Industrial Light and Magic, which is one of, probably the premier special effects movie house of all time, even today. And they were coming up with brand new CGI that had never been really done before to make dinosaurs come to life. And not just in CGI, but also in animatronic. A lot of those dinosaurs were really there as movable robots, with Stan Winston doing a lot of that. And George Lucas oversaw all of that. And he's, I don't think he's officially credited anywhere, but he stepped in for his buddy. Hey, you go make this movie. I will be your hands in the operating room for the post-production. And, of course, seeing what was able to be done got him thinking about revisiting Star Wars, and that's another story. Yes. So that does have some roots with Jurassic Park. And while this is going on, his main actor from the last movie he had done, Robin Williams, knowing what he's going through with Jurassic Park, would call him almost every night on the set of Schindler's List to cheer him up because that's a hard movie to go through. And Spielberg, yeah. who, of course, is, is very Jewish, this is a tough movie to watch for anybody that has any kind of appreciation, whether they're Jewish or not, as to what happened in the Holocaust. Schindler's List is one of the best movies that I've ever seen. Oh, yeah. It, it is hard for me to rate it, though, in terms of among my favorite movies because it's one of those films that really, really cuts deep to the core. It, it hits you so hard that it, it is hard to, to place it in terms of, okay, I've got my favorite films. Um, I'm not sure how to properly place it within there. I don't think you can say without feeling guilty, I enjoyed Schindler's List. How can you enjoy a movie about that topic? I really experienced it. Sounds like a Seinfeld joke. You sort of. Yeah. You know, I really, making out of the movie, I got it. Huh? Yeah. That was from an episode of Seinfeld. Yes. You made out a Schindler's List? How dare you? Yeah. It's not a movie you enjoy. It's a movie you experience. And particularly if you are Jewish, it's one of those movies where you kind of understand what came before you to get you to where you are. If you're not Jewish, and I'm not Jewish, but it, it moved me. It's not a movie that you, I really enjoyed Schindler's List. Boy, that movie moved me. It was an experience. It's not an easy movie to watch. 
Jewish or not, it's the Holocaust and what happened with that is absolutely one of the darkest chapters in American history, and it's one of those things where you hope World you learn. History. You yeah. hope you well, asked, yeah, you're right. You lo- you hope you learn from history, and you don't want to see things repeat. And things like you know the the age old question: if you found yourself back in the early 1900s babysitting in Berlin, Germany, a young Adolf Hitler, would you kill Hitler? My answer would be no, because because of the Holocaust, if that had not happened, it could happen again. Not that you want it to happen in the first place, but you need something to learn from. Something like that, to that level, had never happened in world history, ever. Not that you want it to have happened, but because now that it has, you start recognizing patterns. Oh, look at this. This, yeah. this fits the pattern. Let's get in there and stop that so that doesn't happen again. And you hope you never come even close to repeating what happened with the Holocaust in World War II. An absolutely tragic chapter in world history. It's a top five movie on my personal list. Absolutely. Is this next movie. Oh, okay. I know where you're going. Saving Private Ryan. It's a it's oh. a top five movie on my personal list. Like I said, I, I don't know if I can fully rate Schindler's List in that way. With Saving Private Ryan, it's a movie that I can because it... It just it moves me, and yet at the same time, it is a gripping movie to watch and to to take in and to consider the sacrifice of those who were involved in World War II um, and the D-Day invasion and the way that Spielberg took the war film and and he he went to places that it had not gone before in terms of how visceral this was and how cutting it was and how horrifying it was in many ways the opening sequence i mean if you watch saving private ryan on television it is it's kind of incredible to watch the the way that these these uh these networks will play the entire d-day invasion without commercial interruption which okay, speaks where would you to, put a commercial in the middle of the invasion? That's, right. That's one of the most harrowing 20 minutes of any movie yeah. I've ever seen. And if you can make it through that, you're I'll never forget. shocked I'll never forget the first time that I watched that movie. And, and just how you, you just feel... You feel the emotion get sucked out of you. It's like, oh my word. And, and I have a family tie to, to Normandy days after D-Day. Um, I have a family tie to that, so it gets me thinking about that too. And you think about the cost, and you think about the the efforts that were made, and then that only serves to set up the story that that comes about, and just the the greater themes and the greater topics of why are we doing this with war and with looking out for each other and of family, whether it's the family of this this platoon or the Ryan family themselves. Um, you get all of that, and then it all sets up for the conclusion that you get at the end and, and the idea of sacrifice as well. You know, it's interesting. Uh, I think you said everything I could say about Saving Private Ryan, and we talked about that a little more in an earlier episode, in the war episode that we did. Yep. But it's interesting to look at Spielberg's career about that point following Schindler's List, which is absolutely a lynch point in his career. His career takes a big turn after that. He doesn't direct another movie for four years after Schindler's List. That was a grueling experience, almost a therapy, but in a very dark way for him. The next movie he directs, he directs two that come out in 1997. The Lost World Jurassic Park, which eh, I wouldn't call it a paint by numbers, but it's, it's, you know, 
But then Amistad comes out the same time about yeah. life on a slave ship, and it was successful in its own right, but it's not one that keeps coming up like other movies. You know, it was good, but it was its own thing. Uh, great cast. But then you start going into Saving Private Ryan, and that makes such a difference. But that's kind of the way his career is now. While he's definitely involved in things, and he's executive producing a lot of things, even from Tiny Toons Adventures, the cartoon, he was involved in a lot of different things. But his own pet projects that he would direct, now you've got bigger gaps between them where you're having multiple movies coming out within a very short time of one another, whether he was very involved in executive producing, like 85, and a year or two on either side of that is just, boom, it is the, the era of Spielberg, that, two, that three-year period in the mid-80s, and now it really starts to slow down, but each piece is, to, to use a craftsman tool, is well-crafted mahogany. Whether it's your taste or not your taste, it is craftsmanship, and it's not doesn't have the era of fun and wonder so much as much as it's just like, wow, this is craftsmanship filmmaking at its best. Whether you like the story necessarily, wow. Saving Private Ryan was a big part of that as well, and moving into the 21st century. That was also his first major collaboration with Tom Hanks. Who would end yeah. up becoming a pretty a pretty big um, go to guy for him? Uh, it seems like with with movies over the last two decades that Spielberg has done, there are two names that I keep seeing come up. Tom Hanks is the one. Could can you guess the other? John Williams. Well, as far as actors, Williams. Oh, oh. Yeah, Williams is a given as far as like his whole filmography. Is Harris? Well, I assume Harrison Ford is out because. Mark Rylance. Oh, yeah. Another very common thread in terms of, I, I keep pulling up just these movies. Just won an Oscar from uh, 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 Bridge of Spies, yeah. that role. Yeah, great. I just watched that movie the other night. Yeah, so so then we come to the, the 2000s, and isn't it interesting what, what starts to happen then at the 2000s as his tone really does continue to shift? And not only that, he got into different sides of the sci-fi genre right away with A.I., and then with Minority Report as well, getting very philosophical in there too, while then going to uh, an easy breezy movie, one of my favorite easy breezy movies, Catch Me If You Can, yeah. that he got into then as well. But he, he went a different direction again with something he had previously done with sci-fi with AI and Minority Report, which was really interesting. Minority Report is a Spielberg movie all the way through. and it's, Of course, it's based on other stories. But AI, and we touched on this earlier, was a Stanley Kubrick movie. It and, was. And Kubrick passed away in 99, 2000. Eyes Wide Shut was the last one that he really finished. He got a good start on AI and didn't make it. Well, Kubrick is one of those guys that filmmakers, you know, he's the mecca that you go to pilgrimage to. You know, I we've talked about it before. I am not a Kubrick fan. I th- Correct. I there's, there's a lot to appreciate with what he's done, and you appreciate it for what it is, but not every painting on the wall at the gallery is one that I want to sit and look at. Despite the talent, despite the craftsmanship, Kubrick just doesn't work for me. And AI is very much a Kubrick movie, but of course Spielberg getting involved very much so to finish it, to homage his um, icon, however you want to describe that. Let me repay what he's given to all of us and finish his last movie for him. So AI is almost a joint production between both of them, and it's very much both of them. So it's not as Spielbergian as it is, it isn't. But then he goes and does Minority Report, the first big team up with Tom Cruise before the couch jumping became a thing. And it worked. It's very Spielberg. Didn't need to be reminded of that. <laughs> well, that would come later with War oh, of the Worlds, boy. but yeah. 
War of the Worlds then followed in 2005 as another uh, sci-fi spot that he went into as well, which was a very different take on the whole War of the Worlds story as well that, that he went with there. Some people really liked it. Some people weren't as big on it. It's funny when you think about some of the big names in Hollywood and those that have been directly associated with Spielberg. Tom Hanks now has got, you know, we get to the mid-2000s. you got Hanks three times now, Saving Private Ryan, uh, Catch Me If You Can, and the very next movie Spielberg does, The Terminal, you know, where you've got a yeah. foreign Tom Hanks. But you also get Leonardo DiCaprio in there, Catch Me If You Can. You know, it's almost like to the point now, you're not a real big-name Hollywood actor if you haven't got some degree of involvement with Spielberg, whether he's executive produced something or directed you or whatever the case, and you're starting to get performances now that are getting recognized at the Academy Awards, even just being nominated or winning them. But this is one of those where, I mean, he can craft a performance, he can craft a movie. Now you start getting into the Amish furniture era of Spielberg, where it is so crafted. There's no reason why every movie is like two years apart. Well, you also had Munich in there in 2005. Yeah, that's... Into. That one went very deep in that regard. Did you ever see Munich? I haven't, no. It's a it's another tough one to watch. Yeah, I, I can believe it. Given the subject and talking about that, that whole terrorist plot surrounding the Munich Olympics, that's, I mean, that is a deep... That's a deep dive emotionally and with a story. Yeah. yeah, it's it's a very it's not very Spielbergian at all. I don't think maybe in the way that Saving Private Ryan was. Um, you know, for those of you who don't know, 1972 Summer Olympics were in Munich, West Germany. Palestinian terrorists break into the Olympic Village. Long story short, the entire Israeli team is wiped out, which is only like 20 people, but still, there was a botched they rescue. They were taken hostage. They were taken hostage. Yeah. There was an attempted rescue, and they were killed in the process. And so what happened in the aftermath, the movie's first act is all about what happened at the Olympics, but the majority of the movie is what happened after that. Following World War II, there was a group of uh, the Secret Service, essentially, of the Israeli intelligence forces were after escaped Nazis. There was a group of them that were assembled that were went to go after anybody that was involved in the plot at the Olympics and anyone that funded the group, anybody that you know helped organize the group. But it's also deeply philosophical, how far do you go? There's a, there's a sequence in the movie that I guess is based on a real event. You're going to bomb this house, but he's got children. Do you take out the kids, even accidentally, just to get to this guy? How far do you go for vengeance? It is a sobering movie, similar to Saving Private Ryan. And it's got an all-star cast. You have Eric Bana. You have the, the future. It was about to be announced as James Bond, Daniel Craig. That's right. Um, you've got – it's a great, great cast. It's a, it is a Jeffrey very good movie. Jeffrey Rush is in it as well. Jeffrey Rush is in it. It's a difficult movie to watch. And it's not just because of – uh, it's not just from a Jewish perspective, but an anybody perspective. How far do you go for for vengeance? Where is that line, and how blurred is it? Even though you're fighting for the right cause, how dirty are you going to get going for the right cause? It's it's a good one to watch, but it's not an easy one to watch. Yeah. Munich. Last decade here uh, in the 2010s, two very different kinds of movies that Spielberg was doing during this this decade. On the one hand. You have some more of those drama pieces, but different ones. A, a lot of them were war-related, but some were a little bit more um, news-related. And by that, I'm talking about War Horse, Lincoln, Bridge of Spies, The Post that he does during that time. On the other hand, you have um, either 
either these adventures of CGI or adventure related films that he that he gets into the adventures of Tintin the BFG and then Ready Player One two very different avenues that Spielberg had the chance to explore with a lot of success during the 2010s maybe not as much box office success as some of his previous movies that he had done but clearly he got to dabble into both sides of of his filmography of of what he's done over his time although maybe not quite to the the broad canvas aspect that we had talked about earlier with his 80s and 90s movies but still he got to kind of step back into that a little bit and retinker with that especially with Ready Player 1 in that regard I think the the 2010s is almost a decade where he's got a leg in both worlds if 93 it's, was it's pretty clear yeah if 93 was the year that he diverged he had Jurassic Park sexy rock and roll kind of so to speak um movies and then you get into the fine red wine crafted furniture as difficult as it was with with Schindler's List to the 2010s, he kind of had a leg in both worlds. He started to get back into the sense of wonderment with Tintin, but more so the BFG and Ready Player One in particular. That was a movie that only Spielberg could have made. It's based off of a story, but, I mean, if you've seen the movie, it is so elaborate in the way that it is done. How could you... This is almost an unfilmable movie. Reference on reference on reference oh, as yeah. well. It's, yeah. it's been called for the longest time unfilmable because of how complex it was. You have to find a way to make it work. Only Spielberg could have done it. And this is coming just years after he does Lincoln. Lincoln, you know, I've used the expression during just this podcast, he's doing the Amish furniture version. It's it's fine, crafted, mahogany, red wine. Well, when but you're working with Daniel Day-Lewis as yeah. Abraham Lincoln, you're going to get that. Yeah, But it's, but it's not sexy. It's well-crafted. Nobody gets all excited about a handcrafted amois unless that's your thing. But he's doing both in the same decade and in very short proximity again. Lincoln is a great movie, but it's it, it was commercially successful, but it wasn't one that people were going back for the repeat viewings necessarily. And how do you bring about life to an iconic character that most people don't really know what he was like? How could you get an actor to do George Washington, let alone Abraham Lincoln? And even things like The Voice, people weren't people expected some deep, you know, resonance, you know, Lincoln. And he was kind of like this. You know, it was an interesting voice that people were yeah. really... I mean, he looked the part, absolutely. Liam Neeson was attached for a long time to be Lincoln, and it just kind of got yes, dragged I out, remember. And, and Neeson dropped out, and Daniel Day-Lewis came in. But I think Daniel Day-Lewis did a great job. But everyone's got their own idea of what Lincoln should be and how he was. And a lot of people... There are recordings of Lincoln speaking, you know, very scratchy from, you know, the... Uh, Back from the Civil War era, they're scratchy, but a lot of people, you know, that would know a thing or two about what Lincoln was like, say Daniel Day Lewis probably nailed it, voice and all, probably pretty close. But everyone is in it. You've got, you know, uh, even uh, 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 oh, Richard Dreyfus is in this thing. Sally Field is in this thing. Plays um, a huge role, Sally. Field oh does. yeah, yep. nice to see her making a bit of a comeback. I'd still like to see her make a comeback these days. She's good. Um, what a great movie. And trying to bring uh, a chapter of American life to life in a way that it would never be before. They almost seem like they're iconic characters that are above that of mortal man because they've been so ingrained in us. But who was Lincoln? Who was Washington? Who was Thomas Jefferson? To humanize these people and really make them people is interesting, 
But in a way, it kind of lets you down because they're not mythic gods. Like, in a lot of ways, you think they are. If you ever go to Washington, D.C., here's this giant hall built for Lincoln. Here's this giant spike built for Washington. And then you make them look like any other guy schlubbing around in the but White House people. eating cornflakes. They were people, though. And they it, were it people. gives you that reminder of that. It gives exactly. you that sense of that. Isn't it funny that a movie would serve to do that? And isn't it funny that a Steven Spielberg movie who is a guy that, to do that. Who's a guy that's his biggest, biggest skill is to your, tap into your sense of wonder. And everyone's got that sense of wonder about these godlike figures. And you almost strip the wonder. And you make them real. Because they were. Yeah. And, you know, you know everything that we've built up Lincoln to be isn't like he really was. He didn't float on air. He probably had, you know, smelly toots like everybody else. But that's, it, warts and all, they brought Lincoln to life. And it worked. Well, which brings us now to the present day, and it brings us to the next Steven Spielberg project that is on the way, and it is his adaptation of West Side Story, which as of now is slated to be released in December of this year. We'll see how COVID ends up impacting it. But this is really interesting. For the I think this is the first time that he's doing a remake of some kind, or at least a major remake, and he is touching a touchstone film in 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 Hollywood. Yeah. He he is touching a movie that is is revered in Hollywood from the early 1960s. This, this is a big bold move here, Dave, and it's a different move for Spielberg to go this this route. I mean, if you would entrust something like this to a guy, I think Steven Spielberg would be a pretty good one to go to, but yeah. I am very curious how his what we just described in terms of his journey to get to this point is going to impact the way that he does this movie. Will he go the more serious route that he has gone um, here in in many of his recent movies? How much of the the song and dance mantra of the original West Side Story is going to be maintained here? What kind of scale are we going to get with this in terms of the setting? of where it takes place in, in New York City. All of those things come to mind immediately with me. It's it's a really, really fascinating um, direction that he's gone here in terms of, yeah, I want to do a West Side Story remake. That That is big, and that is bold. You know, the Natalie Wood version, Robert Wise directed it, who had also done Sound of Music. I've got my take on retouching classics. You know, once you kind of do it perfectly, leave it alone. Don't, I know. Don't you and I ever, both feel that way. Don't yep. ever try to top it. Well, so now we've got one of those movies. And if you grew up in that era and West Side Story, you know, the, the 60s version was one that was an iconic one for you. Right? You know, maybe this is a territory you shouldn't touch. But then again, you do have a master doing it who clearly isn't doing it just to do it. He wants to do it. So he's bringing love to the project. So I am going to reserve judgment with as much as I feel about redoing classics. If you've got a guy that's got the skill and he's clearly got something he really wants to do with this, and this is a pet project for him personally, I'm going to zip my lip on that particular topic of it. Because I I, I don't know what you want to say. But I still believe classic movies don't touch them. Jaws. If anyone ever wants to retouch it, even I love Jaws and it's personal to me, great, but don't touch it. But, you know, even if the, the next generation of Spielberg comes along and wants to redo Jaws, don't touch it. It was done perfectly. Leave it alone. This could be an interesting one, but Spielberg doing a musical 
is so it's a it's a whole other genre he's barely dabbled in at all never touched the closest he gets is 1941 and that's not a musical and it didn't really fare very well so who knows how this is going to turn out and maybe people are going to need a breath of fresh air once this covid thing is all done um, and maybe that's the kind of thing I want to go see something that, you know, and not that West Side Story isn't, you know, got its instance of tragedy. It's you know, kind of a modern Romeo and Juliet in a way. Um, I don't know. It's I, I reserve a lot of judgment. It's very out of the ballpark for him. Yeah. It's remaking a classic. I really kind of you're going to do what? And even on a smaller level within the movie, David Newman is going to be adapting Leonard Bernstein's original score as well for the the music for this movie too, which um, which I also find really interesting that you would you would adapt off of the the music that was done previously. That's that's a really interesting route to go because then it it goes okay if they're doing that with the music, how much. Is is the, what he's going to try to do with it going to diverge from what was previously done? It's again, it, it's a very interesting move because we we like Spielberg's work, and at the same time, he's doing something that we have generally gone, uh, I don't know. You know, about. The, he said something earlier that he this is the first remake he's done. Not not quite true. The movie Always came out in 1989. That itself is a is a very loose remake of a World War II movie called A Guy Named Joe about a bomber pilot that dies oh, yeah. in action and comes back as a guardian angel for another pilot. Well, they updated it so it's not, you know, a World War II bomber movie, but your fire bombers, you know, the airplanes that'll drop fire retardant on forest fires. Richard Dreyfus, John Goodman, Holly Hunter. It's a good movie. It's a dramedy, heavy on the drama, and it is a good movie. Um, it's not amazing. So remakes, eh, he definitely put his own stamp on it, and I like what he did with Always. It is a, it is a good movie. Um, it's it's very Spielbergian, but it was what it was. Um, this is such a departure for him. I don't know how audiences are going to take it. I don't know how I'm going to take it. And if Spielberg is very good at putting his own stamp on things, whether it's an adaption from like the book Jaws and making the movie version of it, how are you going to take something that is so beloved – you don't want to do a shot-for-shot shot remake like what uh, Gus Van Sant had done with Psycho. You kind of want to do something oh different. So how do you walk that line with something that is truly revered? And there's 900 versions of West Side has, Story from high school musicals to the big screen version. Dance set pieces that are just that, – that people laud for oh, the work sure. that they did. Yeah, I think everybody has seen some version of West Side Story. Even reading Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet is a non-musicalized, wearing tights version of of West Side Story without the singing and dancing. It's the right. same story but different. How do you take something so revered, so well done, classic to read to it, and yet put that Spielbergian stamp on it where it's its own thing? I, this is a tight wire walk that I do not discount Spielberg. Only Spielberg could have made Ready Player One, and he made it work, and he really did. Don't count out a master like this. But at the same time, I'm kind of holding my breath. I hope the guy sticks the landing, but you're kind of... It's like watching Apollo 13. You know how it's going to end, you hope, but you're still tense until it does. And it's kind of like that watching him do this. He's going to do what? And he really is doing it. And when it actually comes out, I don't know. I got a lot of different feelings about this, but it's Spielberg. I would sit down to watch him direct Tom Hanks reading from the phone book, and he would make it interesting. So stay tuned. 
Final thoughts on Spielberg before we wrap up. It's it's kind of incredible to to go back through his entire filmography and watch how he has changed with time and to watch how, you know, just the things that happen within his own life have impacted the work that he's done. But one of the biggest things that I think he will that he can look back on and and be proud of is the way that he has inspired a generation of people who go to the movies and and enjoy going to the movies. And I think that has manifested in many directors who have followed after him. And his work has been a great credit to just how, how neat it is to go and enjoy a story on the big screen, as well as, all right, now what can I do to, to go a different direction from what I've previously done? You know, we talked about the, the whole sequels part of his, his filmography, but I think it's great to watch how he seems to always find ways to go different directions with new projects that he comes up with, which is pretty neat. You know, he's not he's not a one trick pony by any by any means, and and that's been really cool. Um, he can go into many different genres. He can make it a big screen. I'm gonna come and be entertained kind of movie, or one that is going to make you really think. And he he has had a, a pretty amazing ability to be able to to pull on the heartstrings of people as well while making it a movie that you know you have to go watch with some of his best work that he's done. Um, that that sits in my mind in a, in a pretty big way. Yeah. I think it's funny. I think he's synonymous with the Universal Studios backlot. There are so many things that either he truly loved. He was such a, a Hitchcock fan, and there's a psycho house there. When I toured the Universal backlot in Hollywood, the original, when I was a kid, they were actually filming Jaws the Revenge. Not that that's a feather in anyone's hat, but anyway... Um, it was th- being filmed. Oh, yeah. It was being filmed at the time, and there was uh, one, some of the scenes on the ocean. They actually filmed in a tank there out in the open, and you could see him setting up the shot as the tram is going by. But so many parts of what is there are, are all linked to him in some way, shape, or form, whether they're still there or not. The Back to the Future ride, you know, the E.T. ride, even things he's produced, the Transformers ride, the, the destructed airplane crash scene from War of the Worlds. That's an actual plane that they cut up, and it's still there. It's right behind the Psycho House, actually. And so you drive through this destroyed yeah, neighborhood weird. with a jet. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then right behind the motel is uh, um, from, uh, oh, the Jim Carrey Grinch movie, the Whoville town or whatever. It's bizarre. But he basically if if you look at say the united center for a sports metaphor the house that jordan built you look at old yankee stadium the house that ruth built universal studios is the house that spielberg built because he was so involved there and new hollywood really breathed a lot of life into universal they're so synonymous i remember it's on youtube you can watch it spielberg gives a guided tour on a golf cart with some guy filming this on youtube Driving throughout the Universal backlot, stories of his own, stories of other people. The original orca, the boat, from there were two orcas they used in the movie Jaws. And one of them could sink on command, and that was left out there to rot. And the other one was brought back to Hollywood and was part of the Jaws ride. It was docked in the lagoon, one of the actual boats, until <laughs> it itself Great. rotted away. But Spielberg had said he would often go down there and have lunch on the Orca years afterward. And one day he went down to have lunch to find the Orca gone. And Universal had chainsawed it up and got rid of it because it was rotting out. Ugh. And he blew a gasket because of it. And it was it was kind of a way for him to go back home in a way. Yeah. If I could ever fawn over some well-known 
well-known person, political or otherwise. It would be Spielberg, probably. This guy had a hand on the tiller that was the imagination that was the formation of my childhood. Whether it was just a little fingerprint or a good death grip, I would love to sit in that golf cart with Spielberg on the Universal lot or anywhere and just, let's talk for an hour, you know, and just humor me and just, what an amazing body of work you've done. And I don't necessarily, well, you're so awesome. And the, but wow, what he was the manifestation of a film, many films, that films are what they are. They kind of exist on a screen, but there's nothing physical you can grab from it. Spielberg is, even if he's not on screen, you know it was a big part of a lot of that stuff. And just his brain, where did this come from? How did you go there? What were you thinking? What was it like? Wow. You know, that kind of thing. I would I would fawn over him in a 12-year-old fanboy, probably making him feel slightly uncomfortable, but at the same Maybe. time flattered, you know, I hope. Yeah. Oh, God, Steve, you're just so awesome. That would be me. Before we go, really quick, Dave, can you name a top three of favorite movies of his? Oh, well, are we talking anything he did, or are we talking directing, or anything he touched? Let's say directing. Okay. E.T.'s got to be up there. I mean, E.T. was the first... It was not the first movie I remember. It was not the first movie I saw in the theater, but it's the first one I remember going to see. And 82, I would have been, I don't know, something like six or seven. And I remember crying my eyes out. <laughs> and it was, it was the first movie that just absolutely took you on a roller coaster from the lowest lows yeah. to the highest highs all in a course of about two hours. It terrified me. It made me laugh. It made me cry. It's everything. And to this day, it'll still come up. So I got to debate when I'm ready to let my kiddo see E.T. for Correct. the first time. That's up there, absolutely. Oh, Saving Private Ryan for more adult reasons. It's just yep. a, it's a great movie. It's not the easiest one to watch, but even now, as you think, I'm an adult, I've got this. There's moments where I'm, I'm kind of cringing, whether it's the opening 20 minutes or the slow stabbing, which if you've seen the movie, you know what we're yep. talking about. That is a tough moment to watch, yeah. all of those. And it's funny how you get just before the last battle scene, there's the scene where they're all sitting around this bombed out village and it's relaxing and you almost want to be they're there playing with the them. Music they're playing the music and they're yeah. all just kind of, yeah. And you almost want to be there with them. And within the course of five minutes, it turns into absolute hell. And you wouldn't want to be there for any money on earth. And what a stark contrast that is over that quick amount of time. Yep. And number three, oh, uh, I'd say... I you have some know. tough choices that are Yeah. Left. Back to the Future is one of my all-time favorites, but we're going to say directing, so we'll leave that one out. Um, oh, geez. I don't know. I, might, I knew I this might, would be a good question. Yeah, I might have to come back to number three. The first yeah. two were easy, but you know, which one do you put? It's got to be Indiana Jones, and I'll lump yeah. them all together, even Crystal Skull, because how many times was I a kid, and you'd go see Raiders of the Lost Ark or whatever, and then you'd go run out into the woods behind the house with a little piece of rope, and that's your bull whip, and you'd borrowed your dad's hat or whatever. That's right. And you're swinging over a, a one-inch-sized crack that you find in the ground, but by God, it may as well be 20 feet deep. And you just go out and adventurize yourself, and you come back with scrapes and cuts on your knees and elbows. Every time I got in the shower when I was a kid, all the soap would sting my elbows and knees because of all the scrapes and cuts I got. Thank you very much, Steven Spielberg and George Lucas and Harrison Ford, because that was Indiana Jones. Yeah. It's got to be, all of them. Yeah, that's yeah. got to be it. Yeah, Saving Private Ryan is is definitely my number one. Like I said, it's that's a top five movie for me personally, and that takes some doing, but that's just how good that movie is and how deeply it resonates with me. After that, it's very close for two and three. 
Um, it's it's Raiders of the Lost Ark for me. Like I I put that in its own separate category from the other Indiana Jones movies. It's it, it's one that means a lot to my parents. That was their first date movie, and <laughs> and it's it's a great. If those faces hadn't melted off, you might not be here. Oh man. <laughs> They went on another date after that, and a few more <laughs> followed, so it worked out okay. But lo- just love that movie with, with how the, the adventure piece comes through it, and it's like, wow. The, the wonderment, again, that sense of wonderment, the music that goes with it as well, and Harrison Ford just just stepping into an, another iconic role and making it his own then. So, yeah, Raiders takes the second spot. But man, there is something that's magical about Jurassic Park. Magical and yet terrifying too. Because, boy, what a juxtaposition that movie is between the wonder and the horror of maybe we shouldn't have done this with with uh, putting doing the dinosaurs. Maybe the question that should have been asked was, should we have done it? You know, well, it's, it's to a loosely phrase, quote. It's Ian a Malcolm. phrase in this. Yeah, I, I I love that. Just applying to real life. You know, we're so about you know paraphrase it you were so impressed with the technology that you could have nobody stopped to think that whether you should have yes not exactly. paraphrasing it but that's kind of what it is and it's a great one to apply everyday world yeah i'll say um on two other notes again actually three other notes like i said schindler's list it's kind of off the board for me because it i just don't know if i can if i can properly put it among my favorite movies as like how do i rank this with others it's it's more of a this is one of the best movies he's made and it really does resonate deeply with me and i appreciate it so much i don't know if i can properly rate it there's only there's one other movie that's like that with me and that's the passion of the christ yeah. same way i don't know if i could properly put that in in terms of ranking with my favorite movies because it resonates with me in a whole separate way so schindler's list same thing. Um, and then secondly, Catch Me If You Can is close to that top three. I, I just love the entertainment aspect of that movie. Great music that goes with it. And Tom Hanks and Leonardo DiCaprio on completely different sides of the ledger. It's just a fun movie. And then finally, I haven't watched E.T. in so long that I can't fully rate that one because I haven't watched it in such a long time, but I'm planning to here in the next few weeks that's that's on my my plan of i want to revisit this one more properly because it's been many years since my family has watched et but i'd like to go back to it you know spielberg is one of those guys where what are you thankful for for him everything raiders of the lost ark is a good one that you brought up it's good for a lot of different things when you're watching it as a kid you don't necessarily pick up all the deep elements of it you might kind of grasp something but you don't really get it you're just loving all this hanging under the truck and swinging over. Here comes the boulder. All of this stuff is what it entices you. And you still love that even as you grow up. But now there's deeper elements that you start to appreciate even more. And it's the same film, but it looks almost completely different for different reasons. Just not anything different with the movie. Yeah. But as I've evolved as a person, just getting older and learning more about things and how come their faces melted? Well, that's actually something that happened in the Bible. Oh, Interesting. It's interesting how that stuff goes up. And then you actually do research. Well, is there really a well of souls? Yes, but it's not like it is in the movie. It's just kind of done in a different way. He, thank you for my childhood, Steven Spielberg. You know, talk about coming up at the right time. And when you want to foster that imagination, he was there and came along at just the right time for me growing up. 
And then you've got deeper, richer things to look through. So it's like we're Elton John with music where there's a song for any moment in your life. Heartbreak, exuberance, parenthood, it's all there. Spielberg has done the same thing on screen, big and little screen, directing or producing or whatever. There's something for everything. Back to the Future, the executive produced it, has captured my imagination like few things can. I just watched the, the first two, actually, just in the last month. I haven't got to the third one again yet, but I will. Um, it just grabbed me in a way that I can't can't articulate it. And even still, it doesn't capture my imagination like it, now like it used to, but I remember how I felt the first time I saw it. Heart, mind, body, and soul, it captured every ounce of me. And he had a role to play he in that. He had a big role to play yeah. in that, absolutely. It's uh, He is... For everything he's done, and I hope he sticks the landing on West Side Story and whatever comes after that. But yep. for the future, great movies to come. But the day will come where he will, this is my last movie. The day will come where I'm going to hear it on the news. Well, Steven Spielberg, a loved filmmaker, has passed on. The day will come. And we always lose our heroes at some point. That's going to be a dark day. A dark day. And it's going to it's gonna sting in a way like few things can. And I mean... I'm a big Star Trek fan. When Leonard Nimoy died, that hurt. You know, yeah. when I'm a big was a wrestling fan when I was a kid. When Rowdy Roddy Piper died, that hurt. When Spielberg hangs it up and retires and dies, that's going to hurt. And I'm a, I'm not looking forward to it. I'm just bringing it up, kind of bring things full circle. You want to appreciate what you have while you have it. And if Spielberg is going to do West Side Story, all right, I'm there. I hope it's good. And whatever comes after that is good. Indy 5, he's not going to direct it, but he'll be involved. Hopefully very hands-on. Hopefully it's better than the fourth one. Hopefully, I don't know what they'll do, but yeah. we talked about it. But I, Let's just not think about that right now, Dave. Yeah. There are good things coming with him. I love The Post. I've seen it three times, and every time I watch it again, I like it even more. We'll go watch it. It's, it speaks to the even current times. It's, it's interesting. Spielberg, right. thank you for all of it. Call me. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks <laughs> is sponsored by the Bemidji Theater as we again talk Steven Spielberg movies today and uh, go through the the journey of Spielberg um, that has gotten him to this point and the movies that we have watched of his to this point as well. Boy, that was a good one today, Dave. That was pretty. That was pretty excellent. Bucket list. Yeah, I want to be an extra in a Spielberg movie. Give the, him a call. The, the third guy on the left. Was it call me? You call him? Yeah, call. give me a, whatever. I'll show up for one yeah. whole day. Just, yep. just stand there and don't be stupid. Okay, thank you. You may go now. That would be great. All you need to do. That's all I need. Oh, that'd be great. I goes in a Steven Spielberg movie. Yeah. I'm Joel Hoover. I am a, a fanboy at the biggest level. Yes, and we will maybe see Dave Brooks at the movies at some point, but we will certainly see you at the movies. 